fruit of the Spirit, with which much of, much, many of us are very familiar. Um, we're in chapter 5. We've been making our way through the book of Galatians now for three months, I guess, three or four months. And we'll be wrapping it up, hopefully, in the month of June, before we move on to a summer series in the Psalms, Lord willing. Uh, in chapter 5, Paul's been talking about what is the lifestyle that is characteristic of someone who has been justified by grace alone through faith alone. That is someone who has been made right with God, not on the basis of what they do or have done, but on the basis of what Jesus has done. In chapters 1 and 2, he lays out what his gospel is, what is the message about Jesus that he's been preaching that's been under attack in these churches. And then in chapters 3 and 4, he begins to, or sorry, in chapters 1 and 2, he lays out sort of a biography of himself. And then in chapters 3 and 4, he starts to unpack what the gospel is that he's been sharing with these people and, and defending and seeking to bring this church, these churches back to. And then starting in chapter 5, he starts making his way into ethics, into practical Christian living, issues related to how this gospel is to be worked in us and bear fruit in our lives. And we find ourselves this morning uh, near, the, near the middle of that ethical instruction where he's talking about the fruit of the Spirit. I'm going to go ahead and give you the outline in advance this morning so you can know where we're going. We're basically going to answer two questions from <laughs> verses 22 through 25 under two headings. The first heading is knowing the fruit, and the second heading is growing the fruit. Knowing the fruit, what is the fruit of the Spirit? And growing the fruit, how does the fruit of the Spirit, how is it born in our lives? How, does it, how is it born out in our conduct? So that's where we're going, knowing the fruit and growing the fruit. Knowing the fruit, verses 22 and 23. Growing the fruit, verses 24 and 25. Let's take knowing the fruit first. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Let me say three things before we get into the specific fruit here. Three things about, in general, about the fruit of the Spirit. The significance of the fruit, first of all. Notice the significance of the word fruit. It kind of comes out of nowhere in this passage. Paul has not been talking about fruit. He described in verse 19 the acts of the flesh as the works of the flesh. And then you might anticipate, because this text in verse 22 starts with the word but, since it's a contrast, he's contrasting the works of the flesh he might say, but the works of the Spirit are joy, love joy. He doesn't do that. He uses the word fruit. Why does he use the word fruit and not works? I think there are several possible reasons or possible answers to that question. But one thing is certain. The way the works of the flesh work in the life of a Christian and the way the fruit of the Spirit works in the life of a Christian are different. And he's wanting to make that contrast. Works of the flesh, like he talks about in verse 19, and he gives that big list that Pastor Keith talked to, or preached on last week. Those activities are the products of the remaining sin that's in the life of a believer. It's part of the un so to speak, the remaining part of us that is still subject to the effects of sin in the fall. While it no longer rules us, while it no longer reigns over us by virtue of our union with Christ, nevertheless, 
that sin, that flesh that Paul describes, still exercises great sway in our lives, influence in our lives, tempting us toward these activities. And as Pastor Keith taught us last week and reminded us, and as you know by experience, the Christian life is one of great conflict between this spirit, this, the Holy Spirit and His work in our lives and our remaining sin. So he's contrasting here fruit with works. Now, the word fruit means, if you think about how a fruit grows, fruit is rooted in soil and in the roots, and the fruit is what comes out. It's what the evidence of something that, like if you look at an apple tree, or an apple tree that's not yet given fruit, the only way you know that that's an apple tree, unless you're just really skilled at being able to identify bark and things, is that you see apples growing on it. And you're like, that must be an apple tree. The fruit gives evidence to what the tree really is. And Jesus taught us this all throughout the Gospels. We know a tree by its fruit. We know a bad tree by the bad deeds that come out of the life. We know a good tree by the good deeds that flow out of the life. It's not... It's the tree and the heart that yields the life, that the life comes out of the heart. So here we see that he's talking about the fruit of the Spirit, meaning that the Spirit, as he comes into our lives and takes residence in our lives, his work, his activity is going to be evidenced by certain, certain kinds of character traits listed there in verse 22, contrasting to the works of the flesh. Now let me say four things very briefly about, about fruit. First of all, when you think about fruit, fruit is inevitable. When fruit comes, if fruit is attached, or if I should say, if they're, if the root is attached, or the branches are attra- attached to the vine, then fruit is going to come. Fruit's going to come out. Think about also fruit being proportional. In other words. There's not all one harvest of one fruit in one person's life all over the place. Something that Paul's teaching us here about fruit is that fruit is not only inevitable by virtue of the Holy Spirit's residence in our lives, it's going to, bear, it's going to come out, but also that it's proportional. It's not going to be the same in everybody's life. Another thing about fruit is that it's gradual. Fruit doesn't just grow quickly like weeds or vines or something. But fruit takes time. So I want to encourage you, before we get into the specific discussion of of the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit, it's easy for us to look at our lives and evaluate, and we should, we're going to, evaluate how the fruit of the Spirit is being born in our lives, but we need to to take a long-term look at that. And we need to involve others in that process as well. People who know you well. Because it's easy, as you read through the fruit of the Spirit, you think about all the ways that it's not being manifested and all the ways you wish it were being manifested, and it's easy to grow discouraged. But what I want you to think about is fruit. Think of fruit. Long-term, gradual growth. You should be able to look back over five, ten years of your life and say, yeah, I'm becoming more loving. And so on and so forth. So fruit's inevitable. It's proportional. It's not going to happen equally in everyone's life, although these character traits will be there because the same spirit occupies every Christian. It will be gradual, 
but it's also symmetrical. In other words, all the fruit is there or the Spirit isn't there. It doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit. It says the fruit of the Spirit. So where the Spirit is, this is the kind of person that he gives life to. So as we read through this and think about these character traits, we need to think, this is a Christian. This is a person who has been worked upon by the Spirit of God and is being worked upon by the Spirit of God. So that's the significance, I think, of the word fruit in contrast to the works of the flesh. In order to produce this kind of person, it takes the Holy Spirit of God. It's not just by temperament. Some of you have a lot of these things by temperament, by virtue of common grace, by virtue of the fact that you're made in the image of God, and there are remnants of that that still remain. I'm talking specifically to people who are not Christians. It's real easy for some people to say, I'm a, I'm a pretty loving person, I'm a pretty happy person, I'm pretty peaceful, but, you know, I'm, I'm pretty impatient. And you start to you realize that all this thing, all this starts to hold together. And when you look at the whole list as a complete picture, it's pretty devastating. So to, 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 to live in verses 19 through 21, the works of the flesh, all that requires is a human being to be born. Not everyone's gonna maximize the indulgence of that whole list and just but that's all that. That's natural. That takes no supernatural working of God to produce that list. But verses 22 and 23 require the supernatural activity of the Spirit. So that's a word about the significance of the fruit. Now let me say just briefly a word about the origin of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is. So we see that this fruit, these, this character that we're getting ready to talk about is not the product of human strength or willpower. Going back to Jesus' image in John 15, remember the image that he, that he uses of his people? Jesus said, I am the vine, and you are the branches. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So apart from Jesus, Paul's picking, maybe picking up on this analogy here, apart from Jesus, as I said, we cannot bear this fruit. This kind of fruit comes from union with Jesus Christ by faith. Now, let's move in to the description of the fruit. Is that a word about the significance, a word about the origin? Now let's look at these nine fruit of the Spirit. Last week, Pastor Keith showed us from verses 19 through 21 in the works of the flesh that they kind of fall under three categories. They're kind of three big categories that these works of the flesh fall under. Sexual, spiritual, and social. Let's look at those again. Verses 19 to 21. Sexual, first of all, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. That's the sexual works of the flesh. Idolatry, Sorcery, those are spiritual works of the flesh. And then social relationships, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, 
drunkenness, orgies, all these things that flow out and, and affect other people and involve other people in relationships. Well, in the same way that there's kind of three big categories for the works of the flesh, there's also kind of big, three big categories for the fruit of the Spirit. And they, they correspond in some ways to the works of the flesh. The works of the flesh categories, again, are sexual, spiritual, and social. We could say that the fruit of the Spirit's categories are upward, outward, and inward. Upward, outward, and inward. Let's take those one at a time. First of all, upward. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. I think the primary reference for those specific fruit is our relationship with God. A person who has the Holy Spirit is a person who loves God, rejoices in God, and is enjoying peace with God. Love. Love is defined as a selfless, sacrificial affection and devotion to God. Of course, it has implications for loving others, but I think the primary reference here is probably love for God. Joy, that is, the ability to take good cheer from the gospel. The ability to rejoice in the Lord for who he is and what he's done for you. Peace, that is, a sense that between me and God, because of the work of Jesus, taking away his wrath, absorbing his wrath on the cross, there is now peace and reconciliation and a felt sense of well-being between me and God. So a person who has the Holy Spirit is a person who because of the gospel and the way it is broken into their lives, loves God, enjoys God, and is at peace with God. That's the upward dimension of the fruit of the Spirit. But we also, the fruit of the Spirit has an outward dimension. That is, patience, kindness, and goodness. The next three. Patience, kindness, and goodness. Patience is the ability to endure through difficulty. Graciously. person has a slow fuse. They're long-suffering. They're not easily provoked. They're patient toward others. Not easily provoked. Kind. Kindness. The constant readiness to help. The extension of God's grace to those around us through practical actions of caring and service. Being kind. And goodness. That is a willingness to be lavishly generous. So the fruit of the Spirit not only affects, or not only is evidenced by our relationship with God and the kind of relationship we have with Him, because the Spirit when he's at work, he is drawing us closer to God. He's drawing us, I mean, he's taking us and he's moving us closer into an experience of the love and joy and peace of God. He knows that better than anyone. But the fruit of the Spirit is also, the Spirit is also moving us outward in love to others. And so he's granting us patience and he's granting us kindness and he's granting us goodness and he's causing us to be not self-absorbed and self-centered, but others-oriented, ready to help, ability to endure people who are difficult for long periods of time and care for them and not go off the handle and do evil things. So upward, outward, and then lastly we have inward. Faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
faithfulness is defined as steadfast trustworthiness, reliable, loyal, dependable, keeps your word. That's a character issue that primarily reveals who you are, an inward trait of faithfulness. Can you be counted on, relied upon? Are you loyal? When you give your word, does it mean it? Gentle, someone with a sweet temper and spirit toward God and others and just the general frustrations of life. They're just gentle people. They're not prone to anger. They're humble. They're sweet. They're calm. Not harsh or frazzled. Self-controlled. That is, they're temperate. They know how to be moderate. They're not given to excesses, restrained, disciplined. They're not ruled by their passions. They're, not, they're able to resist temptation. So that's inward. That, that has to do with the kind of character and person the Lord Jesus, by His Spirit, is making us. So that's the fruit of the Spirit. There's an upward dimension, there's an outward dimension, there's an inward dimension. So how are you doing? How, how does this list land on you? I hope it lands on you, many of you, most of you, with, with, a, with a great deal of encouragement. With a great deal of encouragement. As you think about And as you look back on the past years of your life and see what the Lord has done, I hope, I hope you look back with encouragement. But at the same time, I hope that you'll ask others and get their input. Because we are always, always more aware of our sin than we are of the activity of the Spirit in our lives. And so because fruit and growth happen slowly, you don't see growth happen. I mean... You're going to walk up to somebody in this church, you know, a, a younger person, and it's like at the end of the summer, and you're like, wow, you've grown. You've really grown. You've shot up, looks like two feet. But you didn't see them grow. You just noticed that they've grown. So we oftentimes don't notice that we're growing either. Because one of the things the Spirit is doing is getting us outside of ourselves and not to think about ourselves much anymore, which is good. He's getting us to think about the gospel and who Jesus is and what he's like and getting us to think about others and what their needs are so we're not so focused on uh, am I loving, joy, peace, patience, kindness? Am I getting all that in? He's trying to get us out. So oftentimes we won't, we won't focus on that. So the, ask the people who know you best. Ask your family. Ask the people who are in this church who know you well. And just don't wait for people to ask. Go, here is a list that you can use to encourage another brother or sister in this church. Think about, think through the, the list of the fruit of the Spirit and think, where do I see this manifested in so-and-so? And go and speak to them about it. You know, I noticed, brother or sister, that through that trial, you manifested unbelievable peace and joy and patience. That came from the Spirit of God. You know, sister, as I, was, as I was watching you with your children and they were bouncing off the walls, and you, you showed unbelievable self-control and patience and long-suffering and faithfulness in the midst when I would have bailed and called somebody and said, will you take these heathen? So we need to, we need to do that. Use Facebook for that reason. Use Facebook for the identification of the fruit of the Spirit. 
to encourage others. Maybe this week, if you're on Facebook a lot and you tend to comment on people as they, as they update their status or whatever, just say, joy, period. And j- patience, period, as you're commenting on the status. That's evidence of patience, joy, love, identifying the fruit of the Spirit. Just an idea. Take it or leave it. But you still, we still need to work at cultivating this kind of environment in our church. So that's, no, that's knowing the fruit. Now, let me say a word very quickly about this last phrase in verse 23. Against such things there is no law. This is a difficult phrase to interpret. When New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner says that, I take his word for it. Because he's one of the foremost New Testament scholars in the, in the world. And when he says, this is a difficult phrase to interpret, and the guy knows Paul inside and out in a lot of ways, there's a couple possible interpretations for this verse. Paul could mean that no law prohibits the fruit of the Spirit. Against such things, these character traits, there is no law. God never made a law against joylessness. God never made a law against love. God never made a law against patience or faithfulness. That could be it. It certainly is true. But I'm not sure that's primarily what's in view here because of what follows. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. I think what he he may be saying is that the law cannot produce such qualities in a person. We've already seen that in the book of Galatians. That's clear from Galatians 3, where Paul is talking about that those who are under the law are under the curse of the law, they're in bondage to their sin, they're subject to their own, to, to the guilt of their sin, and therefore they are unable to please God, bear the fruit of the Spirit without the Spirit. And what Paul may be saying here, because in verse 18 he said, those who are led by the Spirit are not under the law. In other words, those under the law are under the dominion of sin. The Spirit then produces the fruit that the law cannot create. The life that the Spirit produces in us is, conforms to the law that can't justify us. Does that make sense? The life that the Spirit produces in us conforms to the law. It conforms to what, what God wants in His law, but that the law cannot produce. Now, there's an important gospel emphasis and word here. Let me share a quote with you from Donald Hagner. Very helpful, very good and kind of summarizes this whole chapter in the book of Galatians in in one way. He says, We are set free from the law in order to produce a righteousness that corresponds to the righteousness that the law demanded. The content of the law has not fundamentally changed. It's only the dynamic, the means by which we can arrive at righteousness that differs dramatically. Living out the righteousness of the law, as evidenced in the fruit of the Spirit, does not result in a right relationship with God. Rather, being in a right relationship with God through faith in Christ results in living out the righteousness of the law. Now, that if you didn't get all that, this is the main point of verse 24. And we're going to move on to verse 24 and talk about how, how the fruit is grown, how we grow the fruit. Verses 24 and 25 give us insight as to how the fruit of the Spirit grows in our lives. And it involves two things. 
we got to pull the weeds and we got to water the seeds to use an, to stay consistent with the agricultural metaphor. Pull the weeds, water the seeds. Pull the seeds is pull the weeds is verse 24. Water the seeds is verse 25. I should say water the seed. Okay, so verse 24, pull the weeds. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, let me just say a word very quickly about the first part of that phrase because it's all too important. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified. This is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world. Every other religion in the world says, crucify the flesh and you will belong. Do right and God will accept you. Take care of the wrong things that you do and God will receive you. And Paul says, no, belonging to Jesus first is what results, or the, that is what causes us to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. All those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Here's what Tully and Chavidjan says, Christian growth does not happen by working hard to get something you don't have, like the fruit of the Spirit. Rather, Christian growth happens by working hard to daily live in reality with what you do have. In other words, let me step back and let's ask this. At one level, if you're a Christian and you have the Holy Spirit, you have everything that you need for the fruit of the Spirit. It's not, in other words, the fruit of the Spirit is not a list of rules. It's not God coming to you and saying, be loving, be joyful, be patient. Those are commands that are in other places. But the, the emphasis here is on the activity and the work of the Spirit in our lives. We should look at this and say, praise God, I belong to Jesus. This is who I'm becoming. Not without work, we're going to see that. Not without effort, but this is who I'm becoming. This is who I am by virtue of being a new creation in Christ who has the Holy Spirit. No longer a natural man dominated by the flesh. No longer dominated by sin and the rule and reign of sin over our lives. And we have a storm coming. Can we still, you still hear me? Okay. There's some lights coming on. So, no longer under that. No longer submitting to that. No longer being in bondage to that. So, Christian growth then does not happen by working hard to get something that we don't have. It's working hard to live in reality with what we do have. That's key. That's key. And we're going to see that in verses 24 and 25. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This verse points us back to, to 2.20. Would you look there with me in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul says something similar. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, 
I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So at conversion, our flesh was crucified. Our sinful, the, the reign of sin in our lives was, was killed when we came to Christ. It is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. And the, the life that we now live is a life lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. By the way, I think that's very similar to what Paul means when he talks about being walk, walking by the Spirit and being led by the Spirit. It's a life of faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. That con- the gospel gripping us, informing our lives, shaping our lives, and leading to a life of obedience to God. That's where the Spirit is leading us. So, let me quote Phil Reichen here on this verse. It says, We first crucified the sinful nature at our conversion when we came to faith in Christ. The trouble is, is that our sinful nature has a way of trying to climb back down from the cross. That's why it exercises some influence in your life. Why there's that conflict. Trying to get back down from the cross. When it does, it's able to make a remarkably speedy recovery. Partly because we have a way of helping it. We are sometimes tempted to remove the nails, help our old sinful nature down from the cross, and nurse it back to health. This has to stop. Do not administer first aid to your flesh. Instead, treat it the way Jesus was treated at Calvary. From time to time, whenever it shows signs of life, say, oh no, you don't. Don't try to climb back down from there. Get back up on that cross where you belong. Then pound the nails in a little deeper. If you belong to Christ, you have crucified the sinful nature with all its selfish desire. Do not resuscitate it. Do not give it CPR. Do not keep it on life support. Just leave it on the cross and let it die. Now, I like that word because it, 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 it emphasizes the violence and the, the, of the word crucifixion and the way that we're, we're to treat our remaining sin. However, in and of itself, that's not good enough. And I love what he said there. But just looking at it and saying, no, you don't. Stop it. Get back up on that cross. That's the kind of violent attitude we need to have, but that's not going to solve it long term. Why is it not going to solve it long term? Because when Paul says, you've crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, passions and desires come out of this. And as Jesus taught us, this kind of works of the flesh that still remain in seed form in our lives and still exercise influence, that stuff is, has to be dealt with at the heart and motivational level because out of the heart flows all those things. So if you don't get down to the heart and what changes the heart, you won't change the behavior. No matter how much restraint you place upon yourself by virtue of what if other people find out about it or whatever man-made props you can set up. So in other words... We have to get it at the level of the spirit and not treat, not treat the flesh with the flesh. Not treat the flesh with mere human effort. We've got to get behind that, look at, the, look, at the, look at the motivations that are driving the behavior. Now, what are the motivations? It helps us. We get help from this whole text about how to deal with it at the motivational level. But all these works of the flesh, all these passions and desires that, are, that still remain with us for sexual, spiritual, and social evil, 
um, are born out of thinking and belief systems that give rise to such behaviors. In other words, the reason people sin sexually is because they have a, a belief system operating underneath that action that is leading them to that. And what you have to do is attack the motivation. What are they believing wrong? What is the wrong false belief? And go after that. In other words, asking the question, why do I desire that so badly? What do I feel like that I need more than Jesus? To crucify the flesh is to say, Lord, my heart thinks I need this. My heart thinks I have to have this. And it's offering itself as a false savior. That's what all sin does. Sin offers itself to you as a savior. As a substitute way of finding satisfaction, joy, peace. Come to me and I will give you rest. Come to me and I will give you rest. Come to me. Come to the party. I will give you rest. Come to the gossip. I will give you rest. Come to the rivalry. Get angry. That will give you rest and relief and save you from your present circumstances. Click the button. Go to the website. It will give you rest. To crucify the flesh means get behind that and ask, what is this offering me that Jesus provides? What, what do I want about this that Jesus fulfills? And then you reflect on his love for you. He loved you. He gave himself for you. You reflect on that until this thing starts to lose its lure and attractiveness over your soul. That's what it means to crucify the flesh, to get down to the level of motivation and, and desire. And unfortunately, I mean, we, I hope that we, we'll, we'll tease this out more as we go through the book of Galatians, but this has been something that we've been hitting on again and again and again in the book of Galatians. That we must identify and destroy the false belief systems that lie at the root of our behaviors. And there are mul multitudes of idols that are underneath the surface that are giving rise to these behaviors, and we need to step back and ask those. Otherwise, ask the hard questions of, why do I want this? What is this offering me? What does Jesus offer that's better than this? And once you get down there, then the gospel can start to go to work. And that's the thing that can change your heart. Now this is, verse 24 is referring to, at our conversion, the flesh being dealt a death blow. But as we see, I'm, just, I'm going back up to verse 17 and saying, we've still got some remaining conflict here for the rest of our lives, and we have to learn how to deal with these remaining passions and desires as they, as they come up. Now, let me say a word in closing about watering the seeds. Watering the seed. The reason why I say water the seed is because the spirit is sometimes referred to as the seed in the Bible. And in verse 25, we get this instruction. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So we're to pull the weeds, get down into our heart, and rip out the things that are giving rise to sin, but also 
Water the seeds. We are to test, strengthen, and live out who we are in Christ. By test, I mean we're to see the fruit of the Spirit, evaluate the fruit of the Spirit, know the fruit of the Spirit, and then strengthen that. Notice verse 17. The the Spirit and the flesh are against each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. As a Christian, you want to bear the fruit of the Spirit. You want it. You want to see Him work this deeply in you. And then in verse 25, he says that now that we live by the Spirit, now that we are born again, now that we are regenerated, new people, have the Spirit in our lives, no longer dominated by the flesh, let's walk by Him. Now, to walk by the Spirit is to deliberately walk along the path that the Spirit has laid down. It is to yield ourselves to His way as revealed in His Word. What it is to walk by the Spirit. To to understand His way, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, to understand the way of the flesh, and to walk by His way. Yielding ourselves to where he, wants to, where he wants to take us. So let me summarize here and just summarize the whole text. Paul is talking about that there is a, that the main fundamental conflict in the life of a Christian is the war between flesh and spirit. The ongoing war between the sin-desiring aspect of us and the new, dominant, regenerate nature by virtue of our union with Christ. We want to bear the fruit of the Spirit. We do not want to gratify the desires of the flesh. We are no longer under the condemnation and guilt of our sin. We have been made righteous in Christ by faith alone. And that righteousness, that faith, has the gift of the Holy Spirit into our lives, who takes up residence, our character, into the character of Christ, who is the fruit of the Spirit. He is this list. And he was this list for you, if you trust him. Perfectly. So that by virtue of that union, you could rejoice in him, be set free from, the, from having to keep this list as a way to merit eternal life, but that you would rejoice that you belong to Jesus Christ, and your focus would be there. And as you focus on belonging to Him, not belonging to yourself, not belonging to your sin, as you focus on belonging to Him, you will more and more walk by the Spirit and bear the fruit of the Spirit. Let me close with this quote. Every temptation to sin is a temptation in the moment to disbelieve the gospel. The temptation to secure for ourselves in that moment something we think we need in order to be happy, something we don't yet have, meaning, freedom, validation, so on. Bad behavior happens when we fail to believe that everything we need in Christ we already have. It happens when we fail to believe in his rich provisional resources, the rich provisional resources that are already ours in the gospel. Conversely, good behavior happens when we daily rest in and receive Christ, it is finished into new and deeper parts of our being every day. That's what it means to walk by the Spirit. That's what it means to bear the fruit of the Spirit. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for teaching us this morning how to know the fruit of the Spirit, what it is, and also how it's, how it's grown. There's a lot of concrete ways that this needs to be fleshed out through discussion and prayer and interaction with each other. But it all comes back to the gospel. It all comes back to what does the gospel say about this? How does this behavior, how is it influenced and impacted and shaped by the gospel? So help us, Father, as we, as we, we thank you at one level that this is, this is who we are and this is who we're becoming. Thank you that we are no longer dominated by the flesh, that we've been set free through being in union with the crucified Christ. For those of us who are here today who have no idea what this conflict is all about, have no idea what it means to be set free by the Spirit of God to rejoice in the gospel and, and, and belong to Jesus Christ, we pray that you would give them eyes to see and hearts that desire this kind of freedom. And we pray all this in Jesus' name.